Welcome to the Merchants of Dirt podcast, episode number two. Thank you for joining me for the Merchants of Dirt podcast. This is your insider's guide to practical recreational engineering, where I teach you the art and science of building, promoting, and directing off-road races. I'm your host, professional reckoner and race promoter, Kyle Bondo. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to detail the top five things I wish I knew before I got into off-road racing. And more importantly, how you can avoid having to learn them the hard way. When you decide to build a race, you discover just how alone you are. I mean, unlike tuning a car or creating a web app or even planning a barbecue, there is very little information on how to build a race on the internet. I mean, sure, there are a few blog posts out there that give you some of the highlights, but do they really tell you the ins and outs? The answer is no. I mean, you might find some good ones about 5Ks. You know, in fact, most race promotion information that I've found on the internet is about 5Ks. And if you're building a trail run or a mountain bike race, uh, does a 5K really do you any good? You know, that information, some of it might be valid. Most of it, however, is not. You would have thought there would be other people out there interested in, in building races would release some of their content to you know, kind of explain this to the world. I mean, just consider how many different offered races are held each and every weekend. Are there any good guides? Not really. Are there any good tips? Uh, far and few between. Lessons learned? Uh, they don't seem to exist. And unless you're trying to build a marathon for 30,000 runners, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything even remotely resembling the things you need to understand for off-road racing. And if you listen to my, my, my podcast before this, you know that that's the whole reason I started Merchants of Dirt. I mean, Reckoner.com is all about providing you that information that is not out there. Because no one's sharing this. And that really, really baffled me is why is no one sharing this? So while getting, you know, advice for a national marathon race or from a national marathon race director can give you some highlights, it's akin to starting a software company after hearing Bill Gates speak or Steve Jobs speak. You know, you can go to a Steve Jobs or Bill Gates uh, conference and go, oh, yeah, I can, I can build an iPhone 7, piece of cake, right? No, not at all. So you listen to a marathon race director talk about how he builds a 30,000-person running event. Are you going to be able to go build your 30-person running event off that? Nah, chances are you're not going to need 40 porta potties right? So, sure, you're going to have some insights. And sure, it may inspire you to follow in the footsteps, but can you really start a company based on these kind of big picture ideas? The answer is still no. I mean, good advice, but it's not stuff you can actually use in an actual race, you know, especially one that does not include pavement. So during my first race, and during my second race, and my third, and my fourth, and my fifth, you kind of get the idea. I learned the art of race building the hard way. And this little thing that you may be aware of called trial and error. And trial and error is not fun. There is the trial part, this may work, and the air part, this may not work. Chances are a lot of things don't work. It's a lot like being Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, only my Yoda is Mr. Murphy. 
we'll talk about Mr. Murphy, my co-host. So just like Yoda tells Luke, do or do not, there is no try. My experience was based entirely on the philosophy of doing. And in doing, I found out quickly what not to do again. Hence the do not part. And you learn that the do not only comes after you understand do didn't work. So Luke was lucky to have someone to teach him how to do what he thought was the impossible. So remember that alone part I mentioned a few minutes ago? Sometimes you have to try a bunch of stuff to see what works with your own two eyes. And there is no one there to tell you what to do or do not. And that's the part of off-road racing that is really difficult, especially for people just starting out. So let's make that let's make that suck less. Let's make that experience a little less painful. So today I'm going to tell you about the five things I wish I knew before I started building races. And I hope these five situations help you avoid my co-host, Mr. Murphy. And if it would certainly help you avoid several figurative, although they don't feel figurative, financial and emotional punches to the face. I mean, race promotion should be fun. I mean, what other job requires you to work outside and build recreational activities all day for people to come and you know, smiling faces and everyone have a good time? I mean, race promotion is that is that fun element. And if you have to do trial and error, it takes the fun right out of it. So I'm going to try to make your race promotional race promoters journey more enjoyable by sharing with you these five these five things that have made my journey a challenge. So counting backwards from five. The very first one, you will never have plenty of time. This one should be a no-brainer, but it is something that many race promoters fail at, and it's called time management. I mean, procrastination will drown you. Race, the race production business is a very time-intensive kind of business. There are things that have to happen, and if they don't happen, things go very wrong. It's not that it requires every waking moment of your time to be successful, but it's that there is a, a time requirement to every part of it. And that time cannot be cheated. I mean, time is the only resource you can't, you can't purchase. You either use it or lose it. So, for example, your permits have to be turned in months in advance. Park managers will always, and I mean always, tell you no when you show up with a permit two weeks before a race. Now, side note, not always true depending on what kind of park it is. Sometimes, especially if you have a relationship with parks, you might be able to sneak in a permit. But as a rule, park managers will tell you no, especially national parks. Forget national parks. Two months in advance, minimum. So you can't go on by, go back and unwind the clock and get that time back. Why are you waiting to get your permits in so late? I mean, these are the kind of things that will definitely make your life difficult. A race plan comes with this huge time commitment as well. There's venue layouts, courses to design, insurance to buy, equipment to set up, regulate, you know, registration to sell, sponsors to find, awards to find, volunteers to convince. The list goes on and on and on and on. And I found the time needed to go into organizing all these things before a race to be the hardest thing to get straight. I mean, you can manage yourself by lists, but if you don't know what's coming up, you can't put it on your list. So you may overlook this when building your first race simply because you just don't know what you need to do. And boy... <laughs> Does the time requirement for each step add up quick? I mean, there is a cost to your own time to consider. But the time commitment always comes with a cost that is invisible to you at first. I mean, think about it. What is your time worth? I mean, if you don't know, 
for the sake of argument, let's do some math. If you think of yourself as an employee of your own race production efforts, and you imagine, let's say as an employee, you get paid $10 an hour. Pretty nice, easy round numbers, right? So how much money is your salary going to cost you for your race promotion company to work your race? So let's say you work 10 hours a week to your race. Okay, that's 40 hours a month with me so far. Okay, and you work your race for about four months. So you start four months in advance, 10 hours a week for 40 hours a week at $10 an hour. Okay, four times 40 is 160 hours worth of work. That's your four months. At $10 an hour, 160 hours is what? It's $1,600. So your own labor for your first race is already $1,600 of your own time if it was worth $10 an hour. Now, you and I both know that if you have a day job, most professions, if you're a work, working professional, you know that you make way more than $10 an hour. Okay, the average mean income in the United States is somewhere around, what, $53,000 a year? That, that's more than $10 an hour. So, which realistically means that if you put your real time involved in that, for what you really want to get paid, what actually really costs you money, and here on the East Coast, in the Washington, D.C. metro area, the, uh, the average cost of living here is not cheap. So, if you realistically wanted to build a company in some of these like, major metro areas... It puts your time investment costs, you know, in the three to five thousand dollars amount, and in some respects, it could be as much as you know six to nine, depending on where you live. So all that's just for planning a race that is yet to make any money. But you know, do you need to pay yourself before you're doing races? Wouldn't be much of a business if you can get paid doing it, right? How can you ever think about quitting your day job and doing racing full time if you never think about how much time your time is really worth? I mean, the truth is, you can't. You can't quit your day job if you don't pay yourself and if you don't consider what the cost is that you need to consider when it comes to actually putting your time into that, into the event, your race. So your time is this resource you can't afford to waste. And your time has a value associated with it that you should not ignore. And here's the lesson I learned from this. Only through managing your time with techniques and processes that actually work, I mean, in a sense, not doing different things every single time, being efficient, those kind of things. Your your hope of being profitable is very, very small. So there's a huge cost to wasting your time on things that do not work. Okay, so number four. The number four is you must stay humble. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I once thought race building was going to be easy. I used to say things like, oh, that doesn't seem that hard. I expected to build a race and have a ton of riders show up and make a bucket of cash, and quit my day job, and that would be that. And I really thought my first race you know, would be the launching point of a successful race production, you know, production company, and it would grow super fast. And I expected at the end of my first year that I would have this race production empire, I could be able to quit my day job and be, you know, be self-sufficient, and the, you know, that would be, and then he lived happily ever after. And that was completely delusional. And why was it illusional? Because my first race was a mountain bike race. Had 30 riders show up to it. It made absolutely no money. And that was heartbreaking. And I'd be lying if I told you if it didn't think about quitting right then and there. I mean, put all this time and all this effort and all this energy into this race to have 30 people show up. You know, but it taught me a very important lesson that I set my expectations way too high. There's nothing wrong with a race that brings in three riders or three racers 
or 30 paddlers. However, what is wrong is planning, budgeting, and spending real money on a race that could, that really was designed for 200 riders and only have 30 riders show up. I didn't understand analytics. I didn't understand how pre-reg numbers worked. I didn't understand you know how to market myself correctly. I didn't understand how to, that I was the one responsible for selling my race. So the same lesson applies to all races, to all types of disciplines. If you plan to spend the amount of money that would accommodate 200 participants and you only get 30, you will feel the pain. But if you plan for 50 and only get 30, well, that's not too bad, right? And oh, by the way, those 30 riders really had a great time. I mean, I provided them a fantastic in, you know, event. I mean, they received all the trimmings of a big race and didn't have to share it with anybody. Most of the people who showed up got podium. I had food. We had a sound system and announcing and the generator. And oh, it was, yeah, it was fantastic for them. Yeah. For me, it wasn't, wasn't that great, at least for my pocketbook, as far as an experience goes. Now, those three people went on to become, in a way, brand ambassadors. The next time I had a race, some a lot of those people showed back up and they brought their friends. So there is, you know, there is a icing on the cake, so to speak, and a silver lining, if you would. In the beginning, though, yeah, it didn't feel like that. So it was awesome customer service. I mean, I made customers for life for that race, but it was really tough on my pride. I really had to swallow a lot of, lot of, lot of humble pie, eat a lot of crow, because you have to understand that there is a risk in this business, just with any business, that this might not work out for you. I mean, most race promotion companies go out of business the first year. I mean, just think just normal small business statistics. One in three fail in the first year, right? Well, with racing, it's like one in two. Most races do not make their money back, the money they put into it. And a lot of these people, I mean, there are those, you know, you probably meet those guys every now and then who's like, you know, oh, I just do this for the racing. You know, I do this to give back to the community. And some of those guys actually do that, and it's great. They got a full-time job. They're, they're retired. They do their own thing. That's awesome. But this is a business. And a lot of people go into this business to run a business, which means you have to make money. If you don't make money, you go out of business. I don't care if you're a nonprofit or for-profit. If you don't make money, you don't stay in business very long. So at the time, I didn't know why only 30 racers showed up. I didn't know about marketing, pre-registration, and sales. I was lucky that I was able to recover, at least financially, from my first mistake. There's this line in this movie called Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones. This great line goes something like this, if you build it, they will come. And I call this the Field of Dreams delusion. I don't know if I, if I made that up myself or it's, I heard it somewhere, but the Field of Dreams delusion is a real thing. It's the expectation that if you create something awesome, that by simple virtue of its awesomeness, people will flock to it. Guess what? You can build something awesome, but they won't come. I mean, do you want to know how a real, to really protect yourself from the crushing results of your own overconfidence? It's really easy. It kind of starts with this first principle of profitable racing. You need to keep it small. Small races are the best kind of races to start your career. And that's kind of how I started Reconair. Is you got to start small. You can't shoot for the big, you know, the cheap seats like first time up to bat. You have to think small first and build slowly. You know, there's some business logic to the stacking the bricks. Same concept here. You got to start small and work up. Okay. Can you build a race that is only meant for 50 riders? You can, and it wouldn't cost you all that much to do either. The advantage of small races allows you to learn to flow, do some experiments and keep your cost down. I mean, it would also give you a satisfying confidence boost, especially if you say that you successfully directed your first race. 
I mean, going all out on your first race is too risky. Hedge your bets by creating a small race that you can control. And then add that experience to your next race. Add, add more experience to your next race. Add, you know, if you don't have music the first couple of races, that's fine. Do music the next couple of races. You don't have food? Well, maybe your race doesn't have food. Maybe you want to add it. Add it to your next race. But build off of some confidence boosters and starting off small. The slow and steady growth may, na- may, not, may not be what you expected to do when you first started down this path. The lessons I learned by going too big too soon was a nice visit from Mr. Murphy, who came and really hit me over the head. So if you build small races on purpose, you protect yourself from overcommitting and from losing control of your race. And the end result will be a race that you'll be confident of. And you keep your expectations at a certain level, you'll also consider that a success. And successes in this business are important. Building that confidence is important. All right, number three, and what I wish I'd, I'd learned before I started building races, is understanding repeatable systems. A big part of race building is figuring out how to do something right, and then how not to forget how you did it. I mean, you only want to learn it once, and you want to be able to repeat it without having to figure out how you did it the first time. And when you understand this simple concept, then and only then can you begin to teach these steps to someone else. So... Why does this not sound like common sense? Well, here's the problem. When I first started building races, I didn't know the difference between what I would use again and what I would only use once. I mean, for example, the process of, of applying for permits. I mean, the first time I, I built a race brief, I had everything in it, all the bells and whistles of how I would run the race from the opening registration to saying goodbye to the last racer heading home. I put a ton of work into building this race brief thinking that I was going to impress the park manager. Well, it turns out the park manager really liked the details of the permit, but didn't need to know all that stuff. Total overkill. When I got to my second permit, I did the exact opposite. I put very little information to the permit, and that permit got denied. So when I got to my third permit, I finally figured out what certain park managers wanted to see. I mean, three tries out of two when it comes to three permits, was difficult. And having one denied messed up my entire planning process, which means I had to start all over again. But this is the kind of pain I want to hope to help you avoid. I mean, the lessons learned here is that you first need to write everything down. I mean, you cannot get away from that. You need to write down what works, what doesn't work, and keep it in your race building journal that you constantly review. I mean, The simple technique here is write things down. Each activity, each thought, each idea, each plan, each failure, you need to write it down. What works, what doesn't work. And keep building this race building journal so you can constantly review it. And by writing down each activity in your race building, on your race building journey, you start to learn how things happen what things work for you in your race in my journal i learned what not to do again i learned what race what park managers wanted to hear and what other park managers didn't want to hear so that's the kind of pain you you definitely want to avoid and each one of my entries details kind of a key process that i would have forgotten the next race the next season 
And the journal becomes the baseline for figuring out how to build your version of the race. Your journal also becomes a huge time saver when it comes to just recalling steps that came after another. I mean, don't underestimate the race building journal. I mean, some steps cannot happen until other steps have happened. And sometimes the sequence is very complex. For example, you can't order bib numbers until you know how many categories you have because that would be a waste of money. Or advertise your race until your permit is approved. I mean, nothing worse than having people sign up for a race for a permit that gets denied. I mean, you don't have to write down every step you need to perform, like send your email campaign out to your racers about coming to your race using something like MailChimp. But you need to at least write down that you did it and that there is a step there. I mean, searching and relearning information is a huge waste of time. So you don't want to do that over and over again. Additionally, having to relearn the complicated steps of your process will become one of the hundred things that will cause you to drop something. There's only one of you. Can you you do it all? At first, you might be able to. Over time, as your races get bigger and more complex, you're going to need help. Can you teach the way of you are building your race to someone else? Here's another huge thing about the journal. This is how you have to approach your race building journal. You must start writing down your steps as if you're going to pass it on to someone who'd never done it before. I mean, this is a scary thought, isn't it? Building a process you can share. I mean, could you imagine having a race run without you being there? I mean, take that into consideration for a minute. It should be one of your goals. You should be trying to work yourself out of a job. Because if the owner of the company, you shouldn't be also the director of the company. You should eventually be able to have someone else be the director. But you can't teach that person. You can't tell that person how to direct your race or how to run registration or how to set up a course if you can't write it down and articulate it yourself. So that's one of your goals of working yourself out of a job is so that you don't have to guess what comes next and then you can share that to someone else so they don't have to guess what comes next. It's almost your personal guide to building races. You want to be able to share it to your team, your friends, anyone interested in helping you build your race. You want, of course, their input on how to refine this so you can repeat it over and over again. You want to hear their point of view on why they think maybe that doesn't work. Maybe there's a better way. This feedback, this this kind of collaboration is a huge part of building your repeatable system. And that repeatable system is something that you will be able to teach someone the first time and then they go away, teach someone else. You teach over volunteers. You save yourself all that gray hair by writing it down for the sole purpose of being able to share it. Okay, so now there's only there's only two left. So let's get to the let's get to the, the nitty gritty ones. Here's the ones that do. So we start to, this top five. So you know that here comes the big ones, right? So number two is that and this is this is a huge one, and some of you may not uh, may not embrace this right away, but you have to understand this point. My number two thing I wish I'd learned before I started building races is that you must always be selling, and I hate selling. I hated selling from the very beginning. I like the idea of someone else selling my race, but that is not what you can do in race promotion. If you told me that 50% of the race promotion 
race production was selling your race. I mean, I had paid more attention in, in marketing, in marketing classes and in people who do marketing. Because most, most race promoters will tell you that you have to be a salesman when it comes to getting people to come to your race. And I found that to be very true. However, they, a lot of people won't tell you how they get people to come to their race. You know, isn't that something? For some reason, race promoters think that the actual promotion part of a race is some kind of trade secret. Well, here we go. Your time for it's secrets time. Secrets time. I'm here to tell you right now. The truth of selling your race is it's no different than selling anything else. That's it. That's the secret. You know, sorry, didn't mean to make it sound anticlimactic, right? But get this: if you have a good product and a means to convince people of the value of your product, people will buy it. I mean, this is true for anything else you buy. Isn't it? I mean, the same goes for races. The same principles of the market for buying things you go to Walmart to buy or go to Target, the same principles to get you to buy those kind of things, the same principles as selling a race. Okay? You can find enough people to come to your race, and your race can be successful. And this seems simple enough, but the, of course, the devil's in the details. Selling your race, for, you know, the fun promotion part, is an all-encompassing job that never ends. You need a venue. You need to be able to convince a park manager that your event will be good for his or her park. You need stuff for your race. You need to be able to convince a sponsor that sponsoring your event will help their business too. I mean, you don't have enough staff to fill the positions. You need to be able to convince volunteers to give up their time and energy to help you out. The selling never ends, and it's not just money. In fact, the number one job of a race promoter is to sell, not direct to sell the race. Building a race is simple next to selling a race and convincing someone to come to your race. That's why you spend most of your time on selling and less time on building. That's the repeatable system, remember? Build a race, build a system. You, can, you apply the system to any park, any trail. Selling, however, constantly changing monster. And you also need to, you know, you need to do this in your writing too. You can't just be selling just by word of mouth. You need to be able to write this stuff down. You know, I had no idea how much writing was going to be involved in race promotion. It is a lot of writing. You need to be able to convince people, not only through your sales pitches and through through you know, person person conversations. You need to convince people on your website, convince people in email, social media. You know, there's endless proposals. You spend countless hours writing and rewriting and honing this sales pitch into a consistent message. You know, I spent way too much time building my race and very little time selling it in the very beginning. And remember my example before, the 30 people showing up, it's because I didn't sell it right. And there's a big lesson learned here, and that, that again, that field of dreams delusion that you have to you have to that you have to resist that the not wanting to sell your race. They will not come unless you tell them to come. Multiple times, every day, early and often. Repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, some marketers will tell you that to sell a product, it takes 17 to 20 interactions or impressions before they'll go, oh, maybe that's a good idea. And there's there's ten, plen, plenty of marketing material out there that talks about the first time you see a product. They're like, hey, whatever. And then like the fifth time they see it, they're like, you know, oh, that's a product. And then like the 10th time they see it, like, well, that product is similar to another product I buy. And then the 15th time, it's like, oh my gosh, that product is, is better, better. And then the 20th time, it's like, I have to have that product. That's the psyche of someone who goes through that. Well, same thing with racing. Okay, in a way, every part of your race 
requires some sort of sales. And it's your job to get good at selling and it's sooner rather than later. You have to tell them about your race. You have to tell them email and Facebook and go there, go to where they're at and flyers and websites. And it's just constant, constant, constant. All right, listen to the top four things I wish I'd known before I built my first race. So it's been quite a painful list of lessons, unfortunately. That uh, these are painful for me, of course. You know, hopefully, if you haven't done any of these, these not so not so painful for you. But here is the number one thing. Here is the number one thing that I learned that I wish I'd known before I built my race, and it goes just like this: You are the only one who will care. Period. Just you. I mean, this is your race, and you are the only one who gives any kind of care about if it gets built, if it happens, if people show up. I mean, let's face it. You are the only one who will care if it gets built in the first place. And if you don't work on it, no one will work on it. Who's going to who's gonna pick up the slack? Oh, yeah, Kyle, he couldn't work on his race today. But you know what? I'll go help him out do his race. I mean, you might find a friend like that, but that's a rare friend. You better give him a Christmas gift. I mean, if you take a break, nothing gets done. You have to set the standard for how your race gets run. You have to set the standard for how your staff will behave, what experience you want your racers to have. So it goes without saying, when it comes to your race, you will or you will not get it done. No one else will put the same amount of passion and effort into your race like you will. And if you give up, your race dies. For now, you are your race. I mean, eventually you want to teach others to build your race so you can take that step back. I mean, you want to be able to, again, like we talked about with the race journal, you want to work yourself out of a job so you can teach people to do a job just like you would teach any other employees and get them to run your races and you become the the overseer, the business runner, the entrepreneur. But for right now, when you're first starting out, you're it. You are your race. But even... You will still even have to be involved to make sure things are done the way you want them done. There is a vision and an image of you want to you want to project, and you need to make sure that gets projected all the time. You are the constant compass for where the direction of your company will go. And hopefully one day in this distant future, when you're big enough, you can start to enjoy some of the perks that come with how you know with with caring about how your races get built. You may ask, well, what perks are those? Well, freedom, of course, number one. We talk about freedom. Working yourself out of that job. I mean, becoming your own boss. You know, quit those grueling day jobs. You know, be able to coast during the winter months. But you can only have those perks if you actually build the race promotion business that A, functions like a business, and B, makes profit. If you don't build your foundation first, your time management, your repeatable systems, your sales machine, I mean, there is no freedom. You have to build it. Let me go back to Fields of Dreams delusion. There is a part of that Fields of Dreams thing you have to think about. If you build it, they will come. Well, the if you build a part is a huge part of that. If you build it, you maybe add in there. If you build it and you sell it correctly, they will come. Maybe that's the, uh, the Field of Dreams delusional corollary. But the number one thing I wish I knew, and this is, again, this is a big secret nobody will share with you, is 
you have to want to build this thing into a business. One-off races don't make real money. Your goal to design a system that will eventually remove you from having to be there for everyday work is all great. However, in order to do that, you need to know what goes into a race promotion business. You have to care about the details. You have to care about the small, tiny pieces of how each system is created and be able to share that. You have to build your races into a business that works. And you have to know that the goal from the very beginning is for you to work yourself out of a job, but you have to care. You have to do it. You have to be the one in charge. No one else will do this for you. And if you believe that, if you're understanding that, if you embrace that, then everything else is easy. The other five steps are easy. That's just part of your system. That's just part of going into actually building a business. But you have to have the drive, the motivation, and the understanding that you're the only one who's going to care. And if you don't care, it's over. I mean, I hear Starbucks is hiring, so there's other jobs to go have. If this job's not for you, if you don't care, well, there's other jobs to have. I mean, this business is only for people who actually actually care to get this business running. That's how you make a profit. That's how you make a difference. That's how you impact people's lives. That's how you build a company. So you actually have to care. So that's it. Number one number one thing I wish I knew before it is that no one's going to care for me. There's no accountability. It's just me. I'm the only one that has to pick myself off the ground, dust myself off, and get back on that horse. And now you know. If you learned something from this and you want to learn more, I have a few things I would love for you to do right now. First, go to my website, reckonier.com slash join and drop your email in the box. And that way I can tell you when new episodes are coming out and you know, when my new blog posts are coming out as well. Second, I want to hear back from you about this episode. Did you learn something useful? Is there something that I could do to make it better? Or is there a topic maybe within race promotion that you would like me to cover? If so... Uh, Twitter is always the best way to get a hold of me. I'm at Reckoneering, which is Reckoneer with an I-N-G at the end, or the new one, which is Merchants of Dirt, No Spaces. Hit me up on either one of those, and we'll see about your topic being in one of our future Merchants of Dirt podcast episodes. Third most important, if you like this episode, I would love for you to go to the Merchants of Dirt podcast page on iTunes and give me a quick review and a five-star rating. I am the Reckoneer, Kyle Bondo. Thank you for listening to the Merchants of Dirt podcast. I hope you take what you have learned today and go weave idle into Epic. <laughs>